Before we start the show today, I wanted to beg your forgiveness in advance. This is my first show of my first series. There's some mistakes in this guy, but I'm going to let it ride because I'd rather my information get out there and start to be able to share my story and my mission. So again, I pray for your forgiveness. Thank you very much. And I'd like to invite you, please, if you would, give me a review on the podcasting host of your choosing, whether it's Apple or Stitcher, wherever you listen, please give me a a nice review. I'd appreciate it so much. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Resilient Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Chambers. We're here to share stories from people who've used creative problem solving to follow their dreams. For our first story today, I'd like to tell you why this podcast came to be. I'd like to share my personal story to explain a little bit. For all my life, or at least all that I can remember, everyone has wanted me to talk about my personal tragedy. I hate to call it a tragedy, but it certainly seemed like it at the time. I feel like it's time to show up and try and change the world by sharing my story and hoping that other people are inspired. On a late night in September 1992, my parents got the phone call that every parent dreads. It shattered their world. I'd been in a car accident. My mom says they were met at the door of the emergency room by a clergyman who took them directly to the hospital chapel. Over the hours to come, they would learn what had happened. I'd been in a car of kids coming home from a football game in Florence, a town about 40 minutes away from our small town home. There were two cars full of teenagers coming home, and at some point, the drivers of the two cars decided to race. The car that I was in was driven by a friend of a friend, and her friend, the one that we mutually knew, was sitting in the passenger seat, and I sat in the middle of the back seat, flanked by two other friends. We hit a graveled patch of road, and I've heard estimates that we were going as fast as the 80s or 90s, but I don't know exactly how fast we were going when we spun out, rolled over about six times, and hit a fence post. Apparently, I was underneath, or on top, depending upon your perspective, the fence post. The car came to a stop on its ceiling. My parents were told that they had used the jaws of life to cut me out. They were told that each of the five of us had our own ambulance. They were told that the doctors were working on me, but that I may not live very long, and that I had stopped breathing in the emergency room due to the massive head injuries I'd sustained in the car accident. There in the chapel, a nurse came in to tell my parents that there really wasn't much that they could do. I was allergic to steroids, and steroids were what was commonly used to treat head injuries by bringing down the swelling of the brain. But there might be, just might, be an answer. A surgeon had just arrived in the emergency room that day. That surgeon had, of all coincidences, just returned from a brain injury conference, as in he had just walked in moments before our car accident. He happened to have a sample in his briefcase of a new cutting-edge drug. Would my parents give consent to use the drug? They did. That's why I'm alive today. Now, the funny thing about that story is that I called the hospital years later. I was researching my first book, which was about other patients who had brain injuries, and I wanted some more information about my own circumstances. I was told there was no record of that doctor, 
I was told there was no record of that day. They still haven't been able to tell me who the doctor was or why he was there. It kind of gives me chills. When I woke up, now waking up with a brain injury isn't exactly like waking up. <laughs> it took multiple times over about the course of a week to 10 days I was in a coma. Waking up isn't exactly linear with the brain. And that story is like a really long one, so I'll save it for a different time. But the important thing here is that after the accident, I didn't remember a single thing. I still don't remember anything before the accident to this very day. I had to relearn every single facet of life, from tying my shoes and speaking, to how to safely cross the street, the meaning of words, of language. I didn't know what letters were. I was 15, and I had to start over like I was a baby. People always have asked me how I did it. At first, that question always made me so uncomfortable. Like, this whole story almost happened to someone else. I don't know. You just do. I felt the weight of everyone's expectations all the time. I felt like, and this is hard to explain, but I felt like I had to measure up to everyone's idea of who I was to them. Everyone, of course, has different perceptions of who you are. But I didn't know who any of them were, and I didn't recognize who I was, so I figured it was as good as any. It was ridiculous, really. But I had to try. I wanted so desperately to make the people who called themselves my parents proud. That's right, I said, those people who called themselves my parents? I said I didn't have any memory, so I certainly didn't have any memory of my parents. I actually called my dad by the name of my dog. Poor guy. He still likes me, though. Most accounts of brain injury involve crazy amounts of love and caring to come to any kind of a happy ending. Mine is no different. I had my family. I had the sheltering of the small community I lived in. I had an incredible hospital community and doctors who helped me immeasurably. Therapists, teachers. I was very privileged in that recovery, to be sure, and I wouldn't be here without it. One of the tools that I used was a very simple calendar which seemed so revolutionary to me at the time. Now everyone has Google calendars and, you know, it's so easy to keep everything in your life together on your phone. But back in the day, I had to keep a small notebook in my pocket. It was about the size of a paperback, but about half as thick. And I literally wrote down everything from my schedule to making sure that I wrote down that I ate so I wouldn't forget and eat again. I would write down the names of my friends so I wouldn't forget them when they came to visit. I would write down the names of my grandparents and how they were related to me. Things like that. Pinpointing recovery from anything, not just a catastrophic injury like mine. It's so hard to encapsulate. Why does anybody keep going? For me, I very much felt like I had a choice. You keep going or you don't. It was a case for me of literally putting one foot in front of the other. To be accurate, I guess, I couldn't really put the foot in front of the other foot. <laughs> Walking, of course, was not something that I could do. Half my body was paralyzed. But it was more like I kind of proceeded from being able to roll over without feeling like I was falling off a cliff to being able to walk with assistance and use a walker. And I still remember the day when I was able to walk 
using just the parallel bars in the gym of the hospital. That was a pretty amazing day. <laughs> I, I was so incredibly out of whack because my equilibrium had been broken, kind of. <laughs> that, that didn't help. I felt like every day, every little thing was a fight to get back. But each tiny movement, whether it was figuring out how to get back to my room from the lobby, it took a lot of times to get back to my room from the lobby <laughs> and actually know what I was doing, to discovering how to say the word apple and understand what it meant. Every little thing like that, they were all victories. And I'm incredibly grateful. I don't know who or what saved me, and I don't know why. I'm not here for that. I'm not here to debate that sort of thing. I guess I'm here to testify that I can show up and work hard and I can hope to serve the world that way by showing you that if you show up and work hard, given the right amount of luck, you can make things happen for yourself. I've been so lucky, but I credit any success I have really to the showing up part, but also to resilience. You've got to, you know, knock down four times, get up five or just keep swimming like Dory says, it's not really a platitude. It's true. If I can come back from literally nothing, I hope to inspire other people to do the same. Next time, we'll speak with Delise McCormick, who's an incredible artist, who is also going back to school as an adult to follow her passion for working with kids. I'll be able to share some pictures on the website also of some of her crochet work. She's incredibly talented. And then for our last segment this week, our what's new. I'll talk a little bit about this later, but I'm very jazzed because I'm in the middle of taking a class from a business coach. Her name's Kathy Heller. She has a course called Made to Do This. It's really fun. I'm having a blast. Small groups. It's wonderful. I encourage you to check out her podcast, Don't Quit Your, or quit your Day Job. I'm also, um, for my wow of the week, I'm learning a lot new, a lot of new stuff on my banjolele. Maybe I'll play some for you next week. Please write into the show with any of your comments or any of your own resilient stories at the email address below, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. One of the things that I wanted to focus on in this podcast is inspiring stories from history. That's one of my interests, and that's something that I write about a lot in my books. The first person I'm going to focus on today, the first, the first woman, it's not always going to be women, but today my focus is on Abigail Scott Dunaway, who was a suffragist, a novelist, a businesswoman, a newspaper editor, and a lecturer from Oregon. Now, Abigail wasn't originally from Oregon. She was originally known as Jenny. Her full name is Abigail Jane Scott, and her family called her Jenny. So Jenny was one of many, many children. Her parents had 12 surviving children, I believe. And her, her family worked very hard on their farm that was next door to their maternal grandfather. Their grandfather was a big deal in the town where they grew up in in southern Illinois. Near, it was Their farms were near Peoria, actually. 
Her grandfather had a very large place and he was very well known in the community. And there were a lot of extended family there, which gave Abigail a a very, very strong sense of home. It was difficult, too, because she witnessed the the hard lot that women had in that rural community and really appreciated the bravery of her her grandmother, whose grandmother was injured. She pushed a chair around the house as a crutch because her leg had been severed at the knee many years before. And she deeply loved her own mother, who bore 12 children in quick succession, really, and her health was, was taxed more and more by each child. Now, on the other hand, her father, John Tucker Scott, was a a very well-known man as well, a very successful farmer. And he was a man who was always searching for something more. One of his more successful jaunts was when he decided to start a movable circular sawmill business. And that brought the family pretty good prosperity, actually. And John Tucker was, was really interested in immigration, remembering that they were on the very edge of the frontier there so hard to believe that there that that was the edge of the world the edge of the known world for people at that time period he was fascinated by the overland journey and eventually they went because her father was dead set on it they liquidated all of their goods and went with two wagons there were one wagon was full of their material goods one other wagon was full of supplies and they had a crew that helped them drive the oxen that went on the in the second wagon. That was in 1852. Now, her mother was not super pleased about that, she writes in her journal later on. But she didn't have a lot of choice. No one did, of course, because everything was at the insistence of her father, who was the head of the household then. Unfortunately, on the trail, there was an epidemic of cholera that year, and both she lost both her mother and her youngest brother. And her, her love at that time was one of the men who was one of their hired hands. And he was drowned in the Snake River as they were trying to cross. And he was trying to rescue a straying herd of cattle and oxen, which was that really comprised most of their wealth. It was really interesting. Abigail, one of her jobs while on the trail was to keep a journal. Her dad gave them all a job, and one of her jobs was to keep a journal where she was to write one line each day about the conditions. It could have been anything. It could have been, we lost three people today, or it was hot. It's funny, she writes about that in her journal later, her, her later writings. And some days were, you know, very much like a teenage girl's writing would be. Some of the things are wonderfully colorful, and some of them are pretty dry. One of the funny things that I found in my research about Abigail, she and her sister, when they were back in Iowa, they were allowed occasionally, she didn't have a lot of formal schooling, but they were allowed to read newspapers and magazines that would come into the town. And she wasn't allowed always to read a lot of the more salacious type of material. Things like women's suffrage would be counted under that. It was, it was pretty risky. To, to let women have ideas and start learning to think and read. Uh, it was unusual, but her father allowed it. And so she and her sister had found the work of Amelia Bloomer, who had just popularized in 1834. She had just popularized the, the Bloomers. And so on the Oregon Trail, on the Oregon Trail, it was really funny because 
Abigail and her sister absolutely scandalized the people on their part of the wagon train by refusing to wear the many layers of skirts that they had to wear on the trail as they were walking next door to the wagons. They decided to wear the bloomers. So uh, it, when I go and speak about Abigail, I always show a big pair of frilly bloomers. And sure, my goodness, to me, that would be a whole lot more comfortable than wearing like eight layers of clothing. <laughs> but that really is illustrative to me of Abigail's spirit. The fact that, you know, sometimes she just wasn't going to let it happen. She was going to have her way and she was going to talk back. One of the other things that Abigail brought on her trip was a primer. And she had had, she and her sister had to hide things um, very deep in their mattresses because you were only allowed to bring so many things on the trail, right? You had a certain amount of weight that the wagon would carry. Otherwise, you had to carry it yourself. And we've all seen pictures of them jettisoning things jettisoning things across across the trail. Things would be littered on either side of the pathways. But Abigail brought a primer with her because she wanted to teach her brothers and sisters how to read. And that would prove to be a very valuable thing for her. Once they reached Oregon Territory, Abigail taught school. And she was able to use that primer not only to help teach her brothers and sisters on the trail to read and their numbers, but she was able to use that as she taught school. And it's interesting to me because uh, I live in Oregon and you can see one of her primers is in a museum in, in Multnomah County. It's really wonderful for, me to, wonderful for me to see those actual physical things that, that really ground you to what a person, the fact that she had to literally carry that in a wagon or any other way ac across the United States. It's pretty incredible actually. So Abigail taught school, and before about a year or so was up, she had met and married her husband, Ben Dunaway, a man who was um, actually also from Illinois, and he was a very gentle man. He was very creative and practical and steady. He was also a bit of a dreamer, not unlike her father. But first, they lived on a donation land claim near Malala, and they had two children, and it was interesting uh, in a lot of her writing. It's funny how she writes how she <laughs> worked very hard, as any pioneer woman did, doing all the chores and milking the cows and making the butter, and was so absolutely livid at the fact that she had to give her butter and her milk to her her husband's friends who were unmarried. And, and Ben thought it was the most wonderful thing to be hospitable and bring his friends over for dinner. And Abigail resented it just a little bit because she had to do all the work she felt. It was wonderful. Um, at that time when she, when they were living there, she wrote her first novel, which was called Captain Gray's Company. It was a story of their migration to Oregon that was based on their own, her own experience, but it wasn't exactly her experience. It was fictionalized. She actually, that was the first English book that was produced in Oregon Territory, as a matter of fact. After about four years, they moved to a different farm near her sister's, and they had two more children. Now, here came one of the, the great tragedies of Abigail's early life. Ben had signed a note as a guarantor to a friend's crops. And in 1862, a giant flood destroyed the local grain warehouse and the crops, and they lost their farm. Ben was trying to recoup their fortunes in the gold mines in Walla Walla, and then unfortunately, when he returned, they had a second, second disaster that really was a turning point for their lives. He was seriously injured 
when a runaway calf or a, a runaway steer pulled the wagon that he was on and he um, he broke his back or hurt it quite badly. So that event became kind of a turning point for their lives. Abigail then had to become the breadwinner for the family. First, she went back to teaching and then she decided to keep a boarding house in the town they lived in Lafayette. She actually, uh, I speak in, in, in my book about her. And then when I, when I go and speak in person, it's really neat for me to imagine she literally hung the curtains in the top of the barn and had girls come as boarders whom she then, she then taught. And it's so inspirational to think of Abigail doing everything she could to, to make their, their home and take care of her husband and her family at the same time. Abigail then really had two more kids in fairly quick succession. And it took quite a while for Ben to get better. Ben was recouping and in the interval between the time that he was able to take over the support of the family a little bit more, he did something very unusual for men at that time. He helped take care of the house as much as he could. It was Ben that nursed the youngest boys and gave them their baths and tended to their well-being. Their well-being. It was interesting. Some of these um, experiences probably were what helped Ben invent a washing machine, which he manufactured and then sold up and down the Willamette Valley to help to help their family. Meanwhile, Abigail was a businesswoman and she was selling things to other women. She became really aware of the problems of her sex and of, that women had at the time. She'd seen it her whole life, but she saw how a wife couldn't contract a valid mortgage. She saw how the husband was free to sell all their positions anytime they wished and how the wife really was treated by the courts even as if she wasn't capable of administering their property. Ben and Abigail decided that um, together they couldn't really stomach the idea of that continuing. At this time, Ben and Abigail had built a millinery and Abigail had taught herself how to, how to make hats. So they had a small business and they ended up moving to Portland. They helped start the Oregon Equal Suffrage Association, which was organized loosely in 1870. And part of that helped inspire the move of the Dunaways from Albany to Portland. Abigail invested her money from selling the millinery business and she started her newspaper, the New Northwest, which was a suffragist newspaper, progressive newspaper, I should say, in 1871. Ben was sort of a silent partner at that time, and he got a simple job through the influence of his brother-in-law. I didn't mention him, but Abigail's brother was Harvey Scott, who became the editor, the first editor of the Oregonian. Ben's job in the, the newsroom of the Oregonian helped see their family through the strenuous times, and Abigail's paper started taking off. She started uh, becoming an editor and a circuit writer. She went everywhere throughout the Oregon country lecturing in case of equal rights and equal suffrage. I actually wrote a whole book about, actually, uh, about the time when Abigail met and became friends with Susan B. Anthony. It was quite intriguing to me. I came across that information in part of my research for my first book about women in, in history, and I thought I, I couldn't believe that I had never read anything about that. It's interesting, once I started digging into it, I won't say too much more about it because I wrote an entire book about it, except to say that uh, Susan B. Anthony 
She tolerated the time that she spent with Abigail Scott Dunaway, it seems, and spent the first and last time she would ever sleep in a tent. (laughs) Once they parted, uh, as far as my research indicates, they spoke very rarely after they traveled together. They traveled for about a month and a half to two months, talking about equal suffrage. And and after that trip, I think they were done with each other. (laughs) Abigail went on to, to... campaign for women's rights all over Oregon and Washington territory, as did Susan B. Anthony, of course. She struggled to keep the issues of suffrage and prohibition separate. That was, that was her goal. And in 1912, equal suffrage finally became the law in Oregon, long after she had sold her paper and stopped her active work for women's rights. There are many, many stories that are told about how how witty Abigail was when she debated for women's rights and and how wonderful she was as as a speaker. She also wrote suffrage music that she played with her daughter before every every time they spoke. One time in 1876, actually, she, she literally talked her way across the continent to the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia from Oregon. She started with a ticket by boat up the Columbia River to the Dalles, where she spoke and, and garnered money from her speaking. And a fellow passenger became interested, and he talked to the captain, and the captain held a meeting. And then they took a collection of silver, which bought her next ticket. And by speaking in town after town, she raised money all the way to Philadelphia and back. She was so courageous. Abigail, Abigail was really a a woman of her convictions, a woman who fought against the strictures of her times, but was so incredibly interesting and inspirational to me. I hope she was to you too. Thank you for listening today. I have so much fun talking to you and I love hearing other people's stories. So if you have a story of someone being resilient in your own life, whether it's your story, a historical story, an artist, or a musician, someone you'd like to share about, please send an email to the show at resilientpodcastmail at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you next time.